Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Joseph Illich. Joseph's career as an editorial director, creative architect, and writer began at Milestone Comics, the trailblazing publisher of multicultural superhero stories profiled on the HBO Max documentary, Milestone Generations. A groundbreaking editor on DC Comics' Batman franchise, he has shepherded the development of characters and stories featured in various Warner Brothers films, including The Dark Knight Rises and Zack Snyder's Justice League. His latest project is co-producing the film Zero with 50 Cent's G-Unit Film and Television, based on a comic book published by DC Comics, and he, he also has the children's book series Judge Kim and the Kids Court, for which he is the co-author published by Simon Schuster. And it is a pleasure for me to have Joseph back on the show with me. You were actually, I believe, the second, maybe the third episode that I recorded of the deep dive ever. So I'm going, we're going on three years, actually. Actually, fuck, it's November. This is our three-year anniversary of the show launching. <laughs> so you were you were part of that original three folks that I interviewed um, three years ago. So, dude, wel- welcome back. Well, first off, congratulations on hitting the three-year anniversary. It's been quite a three years. And secondly, happy to be back because, again, yeah. a lot has happened and there are interesting things to talk about in life, in story, in entertainment, in everything. Yeah, it's 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 funny because we were chatting a little bit before you know hitting the record button and we were saying how when we did this we were live in us in a studio right and now we're we're both recording remotely and and pretty much from march of 2020 i've been solely remote when doing the show whether i'm in new york or even recording on the road so it's a shout out to technology that i've made 120 plus episodes of this show (laughs) that did not require being in a studio. So I guess there's some some modern miracle to all of that. But like you said, the, the world is definitely a different place. We've experienced a lot of different stuff. So why don't we kind of jump right into it? And you can tell me or up, tell our listeners just an, an update, right? Because I think if they go back and listen to that first episode we recorded, and listen to this one. You've undergone like some some fairly significant changes in the work and the focus that you've been doing. Right. It's interesting. The last time we spoke, we were talking about actually the HBO Watchmen series and how that really broke open the doors, not only on how intellectual property is reframed by how um, Damon Lindelof brought together a team of writers of color and basically did a story about systemic racism in America and using the 20th century superhero ideology as the discussion for that. And that was actually inspired by um, The Case for Reparations, which was a long form story that ta Coates 
wrote for The Atlantic. So he really showed the possibilities of how hero fiction can explore contemporary themes and the things that concern us. So now, three years later, one of the big projects that I'm working on is Zero, X-E-R-O, which my production company, Illuminous, is co-producing with 50 Cent and with Christopher Priest, who's the most seminal Black Panther writer in comics, and his Black Panther run heavily informed the Black Panther film and the upcoming Wakanda Forever film. Color Farm Media is also a production partner. That's a production company by actress and activist and producer Erica Alexander and her partner Ben Arnon. And Zero was a ahead of the curve comic book that Christopher Priest created that was published by DC Comics in the late 90s. And what it centered around was a black man who was a basketball player, the power forward for a fictional team in St. Louis, Missouri called the St. Louis Vipers. That was his so-called regular life. But in his real life, he was a secret agent. He was an assassin for the United States government. And he worked for an organization that was colloquially called the Closers. And they had a numerical hierarchy system. So he was zero, but that actually meant he was the best assassin. So the numerical system went in reverse in terms of what your status was. But the big concept is that because he had to be able to get anywhere in the world and blend in with any aspect of society, he had to employ a disguise using state-of-the-art prosthetics that made him appear to be a Caucasian man with blonde hair and blue eyes. So this Black man was able to weaponize whiteness to be able to go all over the world and kill people. And a number of people he had to kill were Black. And so Zero was really this story about duality, the kind of duality that James Baldwin and W.E.B. Du Bois spoke about in their work. And the story is really about when this Black man who has been the perfect assassin because his cultural identity was not an issue for him, something happens that makes him question his entire life. And this little crack becomes a chasm. And at the same time that he's having a moral and cultural awakening, he is endangering his position with the government and anyone that he loves. And so this was a really sophisticated spy story comic book in the 90s. And what happened is DC and Christopher had a very unique deal in which Christopher still owned it, but DC had the rights to publish it for a period of time. And they let those rights elapse and they chose not to re-up on those rights. And so when Eric Alexander and her partner came to me and said, we should talk about finding amazing stories, stories about people of color, these themes, these social themes, and elevating them to a larger audience, Zero was really the first thing that came to my mind because the time that we're living in now, it's the perfect story. It's the kind of story that Watchmen actually paved the way for. 
So the way Watchmen was able to honestly explore culture and identity and how that relates to American history and navigating in the 21st century, Zero is going to be able to do the same thing. And we had to talk to a variety of producers to find the right one whose sense of courage and whose understanding of different social strata would make for a good partner. And 50 Cent turned out to be perfect when you look at his career, when you look at what he's accomplished with Stars and the Power franchise. And so right now that project is underway and that has been really a major shift for me because of my work elevating voices in comic books and now being able to take that to the next step to a different kind of media. And, you know, I want to spend some more time on the character and how that came to life, because I think this notion of intellectual property is so significant because what you're thinking about is how to balance legacy of a, of a character or an idea with a reality that is very present day. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about that intellectual property process, because it is a, a legal and financial process, but it's also a creative process once you take over that, that ownership. Absolutely. So I'll give you an example that is the exact opposite of zero, and then we'll discuss zero. So early in my editorial career, I worked on Batman. I was the first editor of color to work on the Batman line of books for DC Comics. And when I started working on Batman, the first month of it really crystallized my understanding of intellectual property. So the first thing is there was a Bible. It was a Batman Bible. It was over a hundred pages, characters, themes, the world. So that gave me an understanding of what the rules of the character were. As an editor of Batman, it was my job to be one of the guardians of that intellectual property. So making sure the writers and the artists all worked within the guidelines of the rules. Batman is so specific an IP that something that would seem trivial to most people, like the color of Joker's lips, that's major. The Joker is a character with white skin, green hair, and red lips. You cannot change that. If you change that, you affect that character across streams of media. And with Batman, Batman is a multi-generational character and really has been part of the mass public consciousness since the television show of the 60s. But even with that, all of that had to be reconciled and there were levels of maturity that you were not to explore with Batman because Batman as an intellectual property existed across so many media that once you go into different territories of maturity, you endanger that character's relationship with a variety of audiences in other media. So Batman is a character wholly owned by Warner Brothers Discovery going down to DC Comics. Zero was a character that Christopher Priest created, and he had a unique publishing deal with DC Comics, in which DC Comics had the publishing rights 
to this character, but Christopher still owned the character. And as long as DC continued to publish Zero into perpetuity, they would be the exclusive publisher of it. At a certain point, their business was going through significant changes and pivots. And there was a time when they examined a number of the creator-owned intellectual properties that were part of their publishing slate, whether it was in their superhero universe or their mature readers line at the time, which was called Vertigo. And a number of them, they did not re-up on the publishing rights. Zero was one of them. So Christopher regained the publishing rights of the character, which he still owned. So that was a really unique situation. And it's actually the same situation with the graphic novel Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. The difference being DC Comics is dedicated to publishing Watchmen in perpetuity. And so the rights cannot revert back to the original creators. So that would be an example of the difference. In kind of jumping into, I had a bunch of stuff that that leads me to, because the minute you bring up Batman and again, these sort of legacy characters, there's an opportunity, and you alluded to this with Watchmen, to take these ideas, these identities, and put them into a a more modern or updated um, perspective. Part of that is sometimes the diversity of the character itself, right? So we've seen in in pop culture conversations around um, Idris Elba becoming James Bond. We've heard, um, we've we've seen a black um, Batman, and so what what that leads me to think about is the reality of using existing characters that have, like you said, a, a history and a particular story, and then making those characters different by race, ethnicity, gender, and then the creation of your own character. Right. So let's look at Sony Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Really important one. That story explored the idea that the spider mythology, the idea of the spider hero is something that goes across ethnicity and goes across gender. But the idea of what that character's philosophy means, which is basically with great power comes great responsibility. And anyone who wears a spider emblem is understood as part of that clan, part of that heroic clan, part of that family of intellectual properties under the banner that is Spider-Man, right? When you're talking about something like Batman, Batman as an idea is so intrinsically connected to class and culture that once you step outside of that, once you say, a black person is Batman. That changes the contextual paradigm because if a black person became Batman, their priorities, their mode of thought may be different in some ways. If you look at the character of Batman, he has one relationship with the police of Gotham City. A black Batman may have a different relationship with the police of Gotham City based upon historical factors. And so on one end, these ideas 
are so big that they lend themselves to exploration along different categories, but in another way, they're very specific. And so I had the pleasure of speaking with a high-ranking manager at a major corporation that deals with superhero intellectual properties. And this person said something to me, which I thought was quite astute. The person said their job is to make sure that these characters still have the same amount of power, iconic power, cultural power, a century from now. Which means when you're talking about IP, you're not just talking about how it's working today. You're talking about the fact that in a way it has to be time agnostic and it has to be able to work no matter how the world shifts. And it's interesting that the the function of time comes in, right? Because we've, I, I would I would say that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna stay on on Batman a little bit longer because it's you know it's what we're talking about right now, and you've worked extensively on the on the brand, right? Like the the character has is time agnostic, but the times I don't know if I'm gonna phrase this quite right, but the times have adjusted in such a way where what was once considered a pure hero. I've seen a lot of debate around, is this the best use of this billionaire's money, right? right? Like the way in which he's acting out his the trauma of the death of his parents. I hope that's not a spoiler for anyone who's not aware of the Batman origin story for the one person out there who is not aware <laughs> of that. But the, the, the death of his parents triggers this lifelong obsession with revenge and fighting crime and, and cleaning up the seemingly uncleanable, which is Gotham City. And, you know, again, I've seen critique of that saying, this is the modern day robber baron way of thinking, right? And instead of putting your considerable resources into the public good of Gotham City, you decide to be a one-man vigilante. Like, as, as we have a different relationship with capitalism, with power, with whiteness, is 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 the time agnostic heroic appeal enough to counter those other cultural forces? Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. And Batman is a great study for that. And again, this goes back to Watchmen in a way, because when the Watchmen graphic novel came out in the mid 80s and explored the superhero genre through a prism of reality, it reframed our understanding of heroes what would later come after that was The Dark Knight Returns, the seminal graphic novel by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen and Lynn Varley. And so Batman is a type of character that has been looked at through more of what I'll call a naturalistic lens. How realistic you can get with a character that dresses up in a bat-like costume and has a lot of technology and goes out and fights crime on a daily basis is debatable. But what I would say is that when you look at the Christopher Nolan films, there was something really brilliant that they did with those films. They made Batman part of a conversation about civic responsibility. Batman was not simply about fighting crime. Batman was about if you're going to change your society for the better, your local society, someone has to take action to 
pull other people out of apathy, as the film stated. So Batman became a symbol to show people that they can become civically engaged and by doing so en masse, they could fight corruption. They could put leaders in positions that would lead to prosperity. So Batman became a conversation about civic responsibility. And in that way, Batman continues to be potent. And that's a conversation that you can continue to have for some time. Civic responsibility, the individual as a symbol, right? And so that is how I think the character works now. And when you look at the family of characters around him, when you look at how the Batman family of characters is extended in video games, when you even look at how that world is being approached by HBO Max now, and you have these different spinoff shows, one of which is the Penguin is going to go into the past and explore how Gotham City became a den of iniquity, so to speak, and how crime families evolved. When you look at the video games, and now one of the main themes of the video games is the symbol of Batman is gone, the city descends into chaos, so other people have to rise up and be new symbols to activate civic engagement in others, right? So that's something that is now ever-present in the Batman mythology across the comics, the video games, the film. And I feel like the Nolan films really cemented that idea in our heads. Yeah, the Nolan films are are the the are the way to go. I, I was I'm on the record as as not being a fan of the most recent Batman movie, only because I felt like they failed Bruce Wayne. Right, like if you don't get Bruce Wayne right, you can't get the rest of the movie right. The the rest of it might be good, but I'm like, wasn't a good Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I agree with you there, one hundred percent. I think. I feel like they made a conscious decision to make Bruce Wayne the foil. And the story is really about the Riddler and society's failure that created the Riddler and how that goes back to the two families that ran the city, which were the Waynes and the Arkhams. So they did sacrifice a Bruce Wayne character, but I feel like they did that for the larger story about the ruin of a city and how this happens, right? And the same way how you could look at something like The Wire, and The Wire is a five-season study about societal deterioration and the maintenance of the systems that keep that society deteriorated. I feel like what they're building with the Batman is the same thing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I want to... I think that's a that's a super relevant point. And whenever we can pull the wire into a conversation, I'm very excited. <laughs> very excited to do that because I want to. I think the wire is a good example. Zero is a good example of how. And I was trying to get at this at the beginning, but I think with a little bit of feedback, I wasn't quite getting the question out in a way that for DC to let zero go, right? For for lack of a better word, there has to be a a rationale as to why they looked at a product that they owned in in one vein and said, "Eh, we're good on this, right? We're going to 
let it revert back. And I know there's lots of different reasons why that could happen, but I'm simplifying, right? Like they're not going to let that happen to Wonder Woman, right? In the, in the Flash and uh, uh, hundreds of other characters that we might be familiar with. But but this one, they were kind of like, all right, we're good. You know, um, it, it reminds me of the Moneyball scene where Brad Pitt's talking to when a baseball player and he's like, I'm not paying you $7 million. The Yankees are paying that money. They're, they're paying They're paying you to play against them. So my point to all that is, is in knowing this as a, as a landscape of the modern media, how is it valuable in our daily pop culture conversations to want a Idris Elba as James Bond when we can make our own James Bond? Right. Okay. So let me contextualize the zero thing first. And then let's talk about Idris Elba as James Bond. That's pretty major. So, or, or insert any black character or brown character as a what we know of as an as a white character. Absolutely. So, but he's a he's a, an easy way to have the conversation. Right. Right. So, I was on a documentary recently, HBO Max, called Milestone Generations, and it centered around Milestone. It was the first black-owned superhero publisher to have a publishing deal with a corporate giant, which was DC Comics. Milestone launched in the 90s at a time when there was such a dearth of culture, of characters from different ethnic backgrounds, sexual orientations in the American superhero comic book industry that when Milestone came on the scene, it reframed everything because you had these characters, they were all from different walks of life, all from different ethnic backgrounds, and their world, the city that they lived in, was modeled after how America works. The origins of Milestone go back to the kind of riots that happened in Philadelphia and LA and things like that. And so Milestone was this major cultural moment, but Milestone still had to fight against the prejudice of the time. And because of that, it didn't find the same kind of support that Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and Wonder Woman and Captain America and those kinds of characters find from the industry in a lot of ways. And so Milestone would end publication in 97 in their first iteration. And so there was a period of time in which exploring and having characters from other cultures was not a priority, right? It was an anomaly. And so Zero existed in that time, where Zero was a unicorn, a post-milestone unicorn, very much a pre-murder of George Floyd unicorn. So the murder of George Floyd happens and it causes a global shift that has corporations recognizing, or at the very least, semi-prioritizing the Black consumership, the Black voices, and how that extended to people from other ethnic communities. And then what you saw was an increase in demand for stories from people of color, about people of color, across all genres, and now Milestone has returned, right? So Zero existed in between these two times 
of demand insofar as the corporations defined demand because the people always wanted heroes like that. But the corporations have their feelings about when it's in demand, when it is marketable, when the global audience will engage it. So now when you talk about something like Idris Elba as James Bond, well, first off, now we can have the conversation. We can even ask that question and it's a conversation. Whereas 20 years ago, that would be seen as madness that two brothers would be talking about in a bar, (laughs) but no one would ever conceive because that's even preceding Barack Obama as president of the United States, right? But one of the big positions is that why do we need to take James Bond and race swap when we can create new characters? So there's a number of positions on that. One is that, for example, in the next Captain America film that Marvel is going to put out, Captain America is going to be Black, played by Anthony Mackie. This is something that has come from the comic books, but it's also something that Marvel Studios created a long narrative for. That's a long tail narrative that led to Sam Wilson becoming Captain America. And by that kind of iconography, you can actually have Captain America relatable to demographics that Captain America was not before. You can actually expand the culture's interest in a Captain America because of that, right? So that is the argument on one end, is that by taking a popular character that is white, changing that character, the idea of that character may have gone stale for a variety of different demographics, but now is suddenly ignited once again, right? Which is important because finance is not only national, finance is global. So something has to be able to succeed within and outside of the United States to be a juggernaut. Now, the opposite is that if you look at something like The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead, I believe, is about 15 years old. But The Walking Dead is a global phenomenon. It's a high-power, multi-layer franchise, which would then allow Robert Kirkman to create his company Skybound. And now you see his other works, for example, the Invincible animated series on Amazon Prime. So there's an argument to be made for entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurship in part comes from the creation of one's own ideas and the strategic and sincere development of an idea to then become something with long legs. You know, kind of continuing on on that track a little bit, because I, I find like this idea of appeal, right? That our culture, meaning like Black culture, has been one of the most significant global forces for a long time, right? In terms of music, style, sports, just the way we move in the world informs so many other things. So there's rarely a a conversation around selling that part of the culture but when it comes to the culture living in different spaces, then it then it seems like the conversation shifts around appeal. And I find that curious because, you know, we both grew up in 
in this world pretty deeply. And I remember feeling like, oh, I'm the only one who likes this stuff, right? And then I wasn't. So there, there, and, and in some ways, I also think we're early adapters to a lot of stuff, right? Like to me, the explosion of of Japanese animation, manga, anime comes through the lens of Black culture. You know, after school, latchkey kids watching all the things that were on TV, and then that becomes part of hip hop, rap music before Cartoon Network. That's right. That's right. So I'm I'm curious as to your experience because you're in the trenches as to why the the corporate powers always seem to need to be convinced when it feels like the case has been made over and over, over and over and and over again. So, you know, my experience has been that the issue is not so much the presence of the culture as it is the understanding of the culture. And so when I look at people like Will Smith, when I look at people like Serena Williams, I just read Will Smith's biography a few months ago, and it's really eye-opening into the man, into his journey, and the entertainment industry during the time of his journey. His Blackness wasn't an issue unless that was made an issue. If it existed in this world and you dealt with more universal themes, then it was fine. But once you want to explore cultural identity, then if there are not the right people at the companies that know that identity, there may be a resistance to explore it, right? Universal themes anyone can explore. Cultural themes are best explored by the people from those backgrounds. So what we're talking about is a situation where when you look at the companies, publishing, film, TV, are there enough people from different backgrounds in these companies so that when presented with projects that involve cultural exploration, that they are equipped to do it. So they don't have to look at something and say, that's outside of our wheelhouse of knowledge. So we're not going to engage it. And if it's outside of our wheelhouse, then we don't know how to market it. Then we don't know how to profit from it, right? So what it goes to is having the people in the companies that can help make organizations more adaptable so that they can explore more projects, so that they can diversify their portfolio better, so that they can be in step with a variety of different communities across the planet. But in my experience, and I've navigated a number of companies, and DC Comics Warner Brothers was certainly one of the most educational companies I've worked at, that to me was an issue, right? It's people engage what they know. And if they're presented with projects that they don't understand, they don't really have a strong desire to engage. I I guess... I always struggle with the understand, right? Because in a lot of ways, all of this shit is made up, right? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. I love it all, but it's, it's all kind of made up. 
right? Like someone had to sit across a room and said, yeah, so a guy gets bit by a spider, right? And then, you know, and then hijinks ensue and, or, or whatever it is, right? It, it reminds me very much of all the controversy when there's, when blackness is now in spaces that people thought were white, right? So whether it's Star Wars, it's um, Game of Thrones, it's Lord of the Rings, people lose their mind about a black person. But all the other made up shit, it's just cool, right? So I, I could tell you, hey, there's a magic ring. It's going to turn motherfuckers invisible. And you got to throw it into a volcano. And the eagles couldn't just fly you there. You know, it's like all this stuff. Yep. Kinda, yep. And, and everybody's like, yeah, makes sense, right? People can trace the entire Targaryen family tree, right? But they, but they don't know the Tulsa massacre was a real thing. Right. But they'll sit there and be like, well, you know, if you go back to like the time of Aegon the Fourth, this happened. And, and and I'm like, yeah, dude. But what about like the Tuskegee experiment? What are you talking about? That's what's that? What's Tuskegee? Right. Like they don't even know it's a place. Right. Much less a university. So I'm being a little facetious to say, like, there's such tremendous disconnects between what is like known and what is just accepted. And and so so how do we like balance that out? Because every time there's a black face in something that people perceive as being a black face shouldn't be there, they lose their mind, which to me limits the reality of anyone pitching something, right? Because if you if you think that, oh, Game of Thrones is a medieval quote unquote kind of thing. And your idea of that is that Black people didn't exist in that framework. So now all of a sudden, this fictional thing is inaccurate. When it's like, no, actually, they were like Black saints and Black people were all through what you were perceiving as Europe, right? So your your starting point is fucking broken. And so now when you move forward, your reasoning continues to be broken, Right. So I'm I'm said a lot, but what I'm trying to get at is like that universal versus cultural. It seems like it, there's a yin and yang or push and pull there. No. Yes. Okay. So you're getting into something really interesting, which is fan entitlement when it comes to popular mythologies. Right. So you mentioned Star Wars, Star Trek. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, you can go across so many. And basically, people are not looking at fiction by the rules of the fiction. They're looking at fiction through the prism of their own prejudices, right? So it's not about what is possible in the fiction. It is what is acceptable in the world that I want to live in. Because when you hear someone say that Star Trek has suddenly become woke. It means that you are truly ignorant to the mentality of the creator of Star Trek, which is Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek was an envisioning of a macro society that was opposed to the limitations of human possibility. And one of those were prejudices. Racial prejudice is rendered ridiculous. Cultural prejudice, gender prejudice, along with the ability to reach the stars 
and engage different societies. The whole idea of aliens, aliens as a metaphor for different races in our world. So Star Trek was always expansive in its understanding, right? Star Wars always had the possibility to be expansive in its understanding. When you talk about different worlds and different fantasy, the rules are totally different. So people are applying their own prejudices and superimposing them on the fiction, right? And the specific opposition to blackness in any of these mythologies deals with institutional racism and still present day demonization of blackness in particular, right? And so that demonization contextualizes blackness as a threat to the status quo. That blackness cannot be part of a global society in which there is fairness, prosperity, fortune, equality, it's seen as a threat to that, right? But it's seen as a threat to that by people whom have benefited from the absence of the three letters that we like to say these days, but that most people don't really engage, which is D-E-I, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So diversity is something that people may find a threat and inclusion is something that people may find a threat, but it's that E, it's equity. That's the big threat. It's equity across the board. And so because we are still challenging that demonization of blackness, we are challenging the kind of mentality that leads people to have prejudices and superimpose those prejudices on mythologies. And now that we have social media, social media magnifies prejudicial thinking. It weaponizes prejudicial thinking and it weaponizes it in a way where it targets individuals because people, there are a group of people who cannot embrace the idea that the world is changing. And so you can't hit the world. The world is too big. It's an abstract. And people are conditioned to think about things in the context of, I don't like something. I have to attack it. I have to hit it. So you can't hit a system, but you can hit representatives of the system, whether those are politicians, whether those are actresses, whether those are entertainers, whether those are authors. So when you look at the increase of violence against a number of people that is directly connected to a desire to not accept the change that this world is undergoing, right? And the more you resist, the more emotions build up and they have to be released in some way, shape or form. So when people are talking about why is there a black woman in Star Wars? That's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is why are there more black people in my nation, in my town, at my office, in my place of work? That's what they're asking. 
and they're not comfortable with the answers if they're willing to confront the answers at all. So we lead to a ridiculous conversation about why is there a black person in Star Wars? That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. It's annoying, and it's it's all the things that you don't want to engage in. And but on the studio side of things, on the business side of things, I, I do think organizations look at this sort of conversation and then determine their 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 financial decisions. You know, they're they're casting. What are people saying? Does this make sense? And and so it has a, a long tail effect to all the other parts of the business that we're that we're talking about, right? And you and you see these these characters are now also symbolic of other things, right? A, a, a character like the the Joker has become this chaos agent that is that is very seductive to incel communities, for example, right? Like these are these are things that didn't exist, at least by that name, you know, when I was getting into this stuff as an example, right? So it, it sounds trivial on one side, but then it has this real life implication on the other, both from a social commentary and from a business commentary, right? So how do we pull pull that apart? Okay, so you mentioned Joker, which is very interesting because so you have this Joker film, it makes a billion dollars. Yeah, the most recent one, which I did not like. So I want to go on the record as saying I did not like that movie. That, that's fair. No one knew it was going to make a billion dollars. And if anyone told you that, they're lying. No one knew it would make what it made. And of course, it made what it made. So we're going to have another one. So now to the idea that the Joker is a representation of or means by which toxicity can be rationalized, for example, right? So it makes me think about the whole Superman argument right now. And it took me a while to wrap my head around it, but the idea that the Zack Snyder Superman was not Superman because he was flawed, right? And you and I remember the 1978 Christopher Reeve Superman film and how that Superman was truly pure and iconic. And what I came to realize is that in part, it's a generational thing because the people that Zack Snyder's Superman are speaking to from the moment they were born until the present, they've lived in disillusionment. They never had the idea of an America that was as good as the image. They have known war, ecological disaster, controversy, leaders who are liars, climate change. Basically, they've been raised in anxiety and they've been raised to not believe that any human being is truly noble. And any human being is noble must be suspect because there must be some flaw under that. So Zack Snyder's Superman speaks to that understanding of humanity. Our Superman is from a time pre-Reaganism, pre the Clinton era, when we still had certain romantic ideas of the Camelot that was, you know, JFK's presidency. So how these characters are handled, it is a generational thing. It does speak to the times 
the Batman family of characters are very profitable. And so the Joker is profitable. What is unfortunate is that the toxic communities have attached to this character to justify their behavior, to magnify their behavior. That cannot be changed. We have opened the genie bottle in terms of social media and its magnification of different types of ideas. And the same kind of social media that can lead to a Black Lives Matter is the same kind of social media that can lead to mass toxicity directed at individuals um, or intellectual properties. But ultimately, it comes down to how these companies manage their characters, understanding their cultural appeal and the ideals that the company really stand for. And it's tricky. I cannot imagine what it would be like to run Warner Brothers Discovery. I can't imagine. No, not at all. But when you look at Marvel Studios, which is just one part of Disney, and you look at what they've been able to do, they've been able to present a Captain America that is a noble human being that we believe in. They've been able to explore different cultures through Black Panther, through Miss Marvel, through Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And so there's room for it. Not only is there room for it, but it can succeed. It can make an impact. The seminal impact that Black Panther, that the 2018 film has made and will continue to make for Disney, it would take us a day to measure that, to measure all the implications across all their different sectors of business. That's one film that came at a perfect time and represents this focused culmination of a community of people and their relationship with these characters, right? And so to me, the power of Black Panther and the positivity that comes from Black Panther can combat a Joker, right? If, our, if that's our concern. So it's really a discussion that is ongoing, but it really comes down to what companies are committed to do with the intellectual properties that they have, which are amazingly powerful. The power of these characters, the symbolic power of them, and how as simple as comic book conventions, how a child can go to a comic book convention or some event and see a character, see an adult dressed as a character that represents some kind of heroism for them. When you see these actors, when you see Brie Larson who plays Captain Marvel and she meets some little girl, when you see Gal Gadot who plays Wonder Woman and she meets some little girl, that's the impact of these characters, of these stories. And so to shepherd them, to live with them is to hopefully understand their power and to utilize them respectfully. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I, I mean, you said a lot of really great things in there, but that commitment and longevity, the stability that was representative in Marvel at the time that they're developing their universe versus the relative instability and sort of, I always felt like these is kind of catch up, you know, I think plays a, a big role in this. One of my, to your point about the combating two things, and it's not just Black Panther, but Black Panther is a perfect example of this. I remember when the movie came out and it's obviously a huge sensation. 
I was in a bookstore just kind of browsing around and there was a, a no little white girl couldn't be more than, I don't know, eight or nine. And she was not leaving the store. Cause you know, they had the big like black Panther, like display with all the, the, some, some toys and all the comics and all that kind of stuff. And she was not leaving until her dad got her a black Pan- a black Panther action figure. <laughs> right. And I thought to myself, how many different things have changed? One, a young girl was interested in this, right? Because when I was growing up dating myself in the 70s and 80s, by and large, girls were not interested in this stuff, right? Or if if they were, I definitely was not aware of it. I would go to the comic book store. There was not one woman or girl in there. Now I go to the comic book store. It's all kinds of different people in there. Older, younger, men, women, whatever. So different thing, right? So at least in my time, there was not a a 10-year-old girl at Toys R Us trying to buy like action figures, right? Right. So, right. so seeing that was one thing. And then going after like a character so immersed in a Black cultural experience like Black Panther is another level, right? Because the only Black action figure I had Growing up, I had some G.I. Joe. So he had like Ranger and like a few others that were black. Right. We always used to pretend Snake Eyes was black. Um, <laughs> and Lando Calrissian. Yes. Yes. That that was it. You know, there were no other black action figures that, that come off the top of my head like that. Right. I had a few, few G.I. Joe and Lando Calrissian and that was it. Now this and they were not they were black, but they weren't black. Right. Like, you know. Ranger did not have a backstory of being like one of the bloods in Vietnam that was now a G.I. Joe, right? He, he's a black guy, had a beret, but that was about it. But Black Panther had such a deeply immersive black cultural conversation. And to see that little girl fighting her dad for this for this action figure was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's interesting because that's what Black people have been doing for decades. Black people have been buying heroic representations that are white and cosplaying as white characters, wanting to be those characters. So the Black Panther example that you put forth with the little white girl means that now it's flipped on the other way too, right? That the the heroism, the idea of what it represents is greater than the racial context. But also there's at least two other factors. One is that I would say that when you and I were growing up, there were more black action figures, but the companies manufactured them to a limited degree and made them available to a much limited degree. There were probably so few outlets that had a Falcon from Marvel action figure, whereas all of the outlets had Superman, Batman, and the Hulk. So that was one thing, not only the marginalization of manufacturing, but the marginalization of distribution, right? Secondly, is that Black Panther also made Blackness alluring because it made Blackness not only intellectual, not only representative of equality among genders, where the people of highest intellect 
were the women in Black Panther's sister, Shuri, but that by representing all the best ideals, it's magnetic to anybody. The idea of wealth and intellect and magnanimity. Magnanimity is very important. And it kind of goes through this whole conversation because part of the reason Blackness is perceived as a threat is because Black people have historically suffered such a vast collective injustice that it is believed that if Black people get equal power, they will use it to punish. Nat Turner time. They will use it to assault, (laughs) right? When in truth, Black people every day engage in being magnanimous. And Black Panther was an example of Black magnanimity. And Black magnanimity is something that people from other backgrounds can embrace and not perceive as a threat to them, which is why Killmonger was the villain from a larger point of view. But you and I having a conversation among the Black community, we see where Killmonger was coming from. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because I want to get you out on a couple of things, but I do want to talk about Killmonger, right? Because there's also a redemptive arc that has been afforded other antiheroes that, assuming Killmonger is dead, right? You know, it's comics. I'm never going to say never. But assuming Killmonger is dead, it seems like there's been no redemptive arc for his character. And I compare him to a Loki who has now become... He might as well be an Avenger. That's right. You know, his his evil has become more snarky charm. And Loki's now a kind of good guy, right? A, a true trickster. Killmonger, as far as we know, is like dead, dead. <laughs> and, and not afforded the same type of redemption to the extent that one even perceives he needs it versus these other characters, right? And Loki was the big bad for a yes, while. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Now he's got his own series on 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 Disney Plus, right? You know, so it's I, I want to get your thoughts on that, right? Like to the extent that that's something that we should raise an eyebrow about, because you're right. When when Black Panther came out, I was buying my Killmonger's Right T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it it really opened up a conversation about who you become is based upon the injustices that were done upon you at a crucial point in your life. And you can understand how a Killmonger comes to be, right? So when it comes to redemptive arcs and how they are doled out in terms of characters and culture, I would say that Black Adam is going to be very interesting. I haven't seen it yet, but this idea of the anti-hero and putting that with this character in this large superhero mythology who has historically been a villain, who by notion of geography is a black character, right? That's going to be very interesting. And so far that has succeeded. So far, Black Adam has taken with the public and something like that I think could pave the way, right? 
how that will extend going forward with different characters, you know, that's another question. But I will say that right now, the theme of the redemptive arc is something that is very much happening across a number of the popular mythologies. And I think the jury's going to be out on that. I would like to come back to that question in three to five years and see how it handled. I haven't seen it either yet, but I, I wonder about the political nature of it relative to like a Killmonger, right? Because Killmonger was super political, right? Um, and I haven't seen the Black Adam thing. And that's what I was like, is the rock, right? Like, you know, you're, yeah, they, it could say Black Adam on the poster, but, you know, people showing up because it's the rock. That's right. That's right. No <laughs> doubt about it. No you doubt know? about it. And I yeah. want to throw one more quick point at you before, seriously, before we get to the last two segments of the show, because when you were talking about Black characters and, you know, we're contemporaries, right? And one of the things that I think about when I had my my growing up in comics, like of the Black characters that were available, you know, you mentioned Falcon, there's, you know, there's Luke Cage, there's obviously Black Panther. I, you know, those were not books I read a lot, be- not because of the characters themselves, not so much Black Panther, but I hated the way Black characters were, like, drawn and the way they acted. Like, I hate, like, little things that people might not think you picked up on. Like, I liked Storm, right? Because she was badass. She had a mohawk. That seemed realistic to me, right? Because she was Grace She was Grace Jones to 80s, to 80s me, right? But when I looked at Luke Cage and the old Luke Cage, right? I'm not talking about the current Luke Cage. He just was mad corny. I was like, why is this dude wearing like a chain as a belt and these jeans? Like he didn't even have a real superhero uniform, right? I was like, this is whack, you know? And even Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau in Avengers, when she became an Avenger, her hair was kind of corny. She had this weird jerry curl, you know? It just was like whack to me, right? And so I never really fucked with those characters. Now we're getting better. Right. Like, but I, I wonder even in those things, like the hair representation, the texture, the styles, it just never felt like they got that right back in the day. Now we're getting better when I open up a comic book, hair and and other features are drawn more realistically. But it's just one of those things that always bothered me. And I think like black people intrinsically recognize that shit. <laughs> So it's no, like it, my quirky little funny thing, and then we're going to get to the um, off the dome and the drop. So I'll tell you what you were recognizing, what we were recognizing. You had Black characters who were being created by white authors, and their reference point of Blackness was black exploitation films in the 70s. Black exploitation is a genre. Black exploitation is not a documentary. They f- took... Black exploitation as a documentary and use that as the source point to give us Luke Cage, to give us Ty Rock from the Legion of Superheroes. When you look at the 80s, they looked at Monica Rambeau. They were probably looking at soap operas. They were looking at cultural references, which again, did not represent the totality of Black culture, but they found certain touch points and said, oh, that's what it means to be Black. So if we create a Black hero, it needs to represent that. So it was their lack of understanding of our culture and the lack of understanding that what they saw as our culture was genre 
and not documentary that led to their distorted creations of black heroes. Me growing up, I didn't see a black character that I felt truly spoke to me. It wasn't until 1993 and I walked into a newsstand in Brooklyn and discovered a milestone comic book. That comic book made by people, a company owned by four black men that had a diverse staff that brought a cultural and societal truth to their hero fiction. That was the first time I saw blackness in the superheroic genre that spoke to the truth of my existence, right? The reason we're getting better now is because we are creating the characters now. So when you talk about a DC series like Far Sector, which had the first black Green Lantern created in the 21st century, to my knowledge, that black woman was created by N.K. Jemison, the three-time Hugo award-winning author of science fiction and fantasy novels who is black, and Jamal Campbell, a man who is black, right? So they're getting better because we are creating them now because the companies are hiring us and coming to us to develop these characters. So when you talk about the past, I feel like the best that we got in terms of black characters created by white authors and artists, John Stewart the Green Lantern absolutely is definitely one of the best out of the batch. Obviously, Black Panther, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Storm, as you pointed out, right? Those were some of the best that we had at that time. Now what we have speaks a more cultural truth. Instead of having to overcome cultural distortion, to get to a cultural truth. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better, and I didn't. So we're gonna we're gonna use that jumping off point to get to the final two segments of the show, which are off the dome and the drop. And for off the dome, I only have two questions right now. They're really really quick ones. Okay. If you had to intro a novice to the the broad world of comic book genre, however you are defining that, what's your go to story to say? Hey, if you want to understand why this means something to me, read this or watch this or whatever it is. What's your introduction point? For me, it would be one of two books, a graphic novel called American Born Chinese, written and illustrated by Gene Luen Yang. I was introduced to that book back in 2007. And now I've given, my wife and I have given that book as a gift to a number of people because what it has to say about Chinese self-identity and the exploration of such from someone of that background, Gene Luen Yang basically telling his story through that book. It's really eye-opening, but it also shows the possibilities of what kind of stories can be told in the comic book format. And that's a graphic novel that, as much as people throw around the term all ages, I honestly feel like you could give this book to an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old, and they would both get something from it. So that would be one book. Another book would be the first issue of a milestone series called Hardware that came out in 1993, has recently 
been reprinted in a massive book called Milestone Compendium One. That first issue and its exploration about the duality of Blackness in corporate America is seminal. It truly is. There was a time before Hardware One and there was a time after Hardware One. And the creators of that story, Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, geniuses. I, I have that compendium, so I'm like, and I have the original, so it's like I'm smiling as you're as you're saying that. So my my second and final off the dome is a, a kind of classic nerd conversation. DC's best against Marvel's best. Who's winning that, and who's illustrating it for you? Wow. So best character, right? That's really an interesting kind of like a, a Secret Wars of DC versus Marvel. Right. So we got okay. they're lined up. The rosters are made. Whoever in your mind is on those rosters doesn't really matter because it's too many names. But we're that's the thing. DC versus Marvel, best against the best. Who's winning that fight? And then who's best illustrating that fight? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because these days the groups have shifted in terms of what they symbolize. I would have to say. For me, I would have to put the Justice League up against the X-Men. And in terms of who would tell this story, very interesting. There's a writer named Tom Taylor who I feel has a true exceptional understanding of the heart of DC Comics, the heart of it, and what that universe means. And the artist would be, there's an artist named Chris Samney, and he is able to communicate so much with so few lines. There are some artists who feel like more is more, more line is more, more detail is more. And in some cases that's right, but sometimes less is more. And Chris Samney is one of those artists who understands that less can be more. That's awesome, that's awesome. Great, great recommends all the way around. So I'm gonna get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is our opportunity to share something, anything with our listeners. It can even be more than one thing. So my drop this week is um, Andor, which has been running on <sighs> Disney+. Plus. It's, I think, by far the best show that's come out of the Star Wars live action shows. I'm not counting Clone Wars as, as a show. But in, I know The Mandalorian, everybody loves, you know, Baby Yoda and all the rest of that stuff. But in terms of just pure impact and storytelling, Andor is is the best show. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm loving it. And so my, my drop is Andor, Disney+. Plus. God, I hate you because how am I going to beat that? Because <laughs> that show, it's a shame that we have to say it's extraordinary, but it is the way it handles character, suspense, tension. I got my wife into it. She can't watch two episodes of Andor back to back because she's been so emotionally drained from one that she needs time to regenerate her emotional reserves to go to another. So it's truly brilliant. And no matter when they introduce a character or what kind of character they introduce, no character is minor. Every character has an angle. It's brilliant storytelling across the board. And, you know, I would say, I would agree with you. It is the best live action Star Wars show. And if you haven't already, go rewatch Rogue One. 
now that you're watching Andor. And that's an experience of the recontextualization of everything, right? So, okay, somehow I have to come after that. I'm not going to be able to beat Andor. But for me, it's going to be something that I mentioned earlier, which is the biography of Will Smith called Will. I really, I really looked at that book, like in reading that book, what really came through is I really admired his capacity to admit to his vulnerabilities. He basically started the book by admitting to a vulnerability and how that vulnerability has been at the undercurrent of his entire life, but also his acknowledgement of mentors along the way. You know, we look at the kind of people who are deified these days in our society, and part of the illusion is one human being is extraordinary. But that person gets to where they are through mentors, to people who were generous and shared information and took their hand and took them on journeys of business, of myth, of personal maturation. And when you get to the end of Will Smith's journey and understand how a variety of important people from James Lasseter to Quincy Jones to, you know, even a woman who he stayed with during a downtime and then she had to kick his butt and say, go out there and start a new life. And that's what led to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which changed his entire life. The important Jada Pinkett Smith her importance to him. It really, it reminds us of the importance of the people in our lives who helped us get to where we are now and the necessity for humility and to acknowledge those people. That's amazing. That's an awesome drop. I would say that you matched Andor and then some with, with, the, Will Smith, <laughs> with the Will Smith biography and in all in all seriousness. You know, as as always, man, we had a, a great conversation. We could do this all day. Definitely. Um, but we both can't because we got other things to do. But I wanna I wanna thank you so much for coming back on the show. Like I said, you were one of the original, original three guests for the deep dive, and here we are three years later, hundred plus episodes, and I'm chopping it up with um, someone that I really um, respect and admire your work and your tenacity, your creativity and all that good stuff. So brother, I want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be able to come back and glad that three years later, we're both here alive, healthy and continuing to talk about these things that are important in our world, which is heading towards our better potential. Absolutely, brother. Thanks again. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.